the Gospel of Mark. For the next five weeks, um, there's, there's an addition to the pattern that we've seen in the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark. And so if you were with us uh, before the holidays, before the series on Scripture, you may remember that we saw as Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. And then right following that, Jesus heals a leper uh, who comes to him and falls down before him and says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Uh, what we're going to see in the next five weeks also involves more healings, but there's, there's an addition here, and that addition is rising opposition. Um, and what's interesting is here in the Gospel of Mark, this opposition is coming primarily from the religious leaders of Israel. And so if you pay attention for the next five weeks, you'll see in every setting, whether we're looking at a healing uh, or when Levi, the tax collector, is called, uh, or in a theological question, there's always going to be a question from the religious leaders, and it's always somewhat um, negative, cynical, critical, uh, and we'll see as the opposition ramps up. And by the end of this, uh, in five weeks' time, uh, the Jews will start to plot the death of Jesus Christ. It escalates very quickly. Um, as we look at these, though, it helps us to parse the difference between Jesus and religion. And to be honest, even though we've called this series Jesus Against Religion, uh, I don't love the idea of Jesus being anti-religion, but Jesus against what we sometimes personify as religion as a very negative thing is too long for a title. Uh, and so we'll, we'll let it stand. But it is helpful for us to contrast the difference between the good news that Jesus is bringing um, and a lot of sentiments and baggage that often come along with religion uh, in our hearts, uh, in the church, uh, and even in the world, even those who would say that they are irreligious. And so we're going to pick up this morning in the Gospel of Mark chapter 2. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. Uh, if you're in need of a Bible this morning, the black bound books in front of you in the back of the pew um, is a Bible, and you will find the index at the front will point your way to the New Testament book of the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2. We're going to pick up in verse 1 this morning and read through verse 12. Mark chapter 2, verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no, no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd... They removed the roof above him, and when they'd made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? 
Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Let's pray. Father, the worst facets of religiosity are woven into uh, every human heart. And Jesus didn't come just to, to save us from our sins, but from, from our self-saving religion as well. And so I pray, God, that you would use your word and this particular story of what Jesus came and did to uproot these things from our heart this morning and replace it uh, with the good news of the gospel of the God who became flesh, uh, who lived for us and died for us and invites us to live with him. We pray that you would help us with this in Jesus' name. Amen. Quite a few of the threads of what we've already seen in the foundational first chapter of the Gospel of Mark are present in this story. So, for example, we see that as soon as Jesus shows up, word gets round that Jesus has come home to where he's living at the time in Capernaum. Uh, most likely, this home that he's staying in is the home of Peter. Um, in fact, if you come with me to Israel this summer, uh, we will see the ruins of Capernaum uh, and, uh, and where we believe uh, at least a model house of what Peter's house would have been like. We do know that his house was near the synagogue. This house is near the synagogue. It's interesting. Um, but anyways, uh, not only do we see that Jesus has this repu reputation, and it, so it gathers a crowd, it packs out the house, and even right outside the house, there's people pressing in on the doorway uh, so that they can hear Jesus. Uh, the second thing that we see is, uh, you may remember that after, after Jesus had spent all night uh, casting out demons and healing all who came to him, he rose early in the morning and went out to pray, and during that prayer time, he changes his posture. And so the disciples come and they say, everybody's looking for you. And he says, we need to move on to another town so that I can preach the good news to them also, for this is the reason why I have come. And so Jesus has come with a message. He's come to preach about the kingdom of God. And so we see that that's what he's doing for these people here. But what happens while this is happening is four men and a paralytic come to the house, and they've brought their paralyzed friend to be healed by Jesus. They've heard about the healings that they have done, but the crowd is so thickly packed, there's no way to get a man laying on a pallet or a small bed uh, uh, through the crowd. And so what they do is they go up the outside steps onto the roof. Now, in, uh, in Israel and most of the Middle East at this time, uh, the roofs were flat, uh, there was always an external staircase. They were woven um, branches and reeds and such between the beams and then covered in mud. So it acted basically like a sun patio. Uh, and it was a way to be outdoors and escape the inside of the house. And so they climb up there and they begin to tear apart this roof wide enough to lower down their friend through the roof directly between Jesus and his audience. And it's worth remembering here that that's not just a uh, substantial task, but probably a pretty noticeable one. 
okay? And it's not like it happens over the course of a couple of seconds. It's, it's minutes go by, and the sound is the first thing that's heard, and then there's the crumbling mud from the ceiling, and then the pulling of the branches. Everything is interrupted, and then all of a sudden, you know, the sun is blocked as this person on a bed is lowered down in front of Jesus. It's, uh, it's dramatic, to say the least, And what's interesting here, as Matt mentioned earlier, is as soon as Jesus sees this man, the first thing it says, look again at verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. And so Jesus responds to this man, but I think here we see the first sign that Jesus is something different. Remember here, Jesus is preaching. What we're observing here is somewhat like an informal church service. Jesus is giving a sermon, and his sermon has now been overwhelmingly and unstoppably interrupted. I can remember a time when I had um, just begun teaching the Bible, and I was, uh, I was a junior high pastor at the time, and I was addressing my junior hires, and I don't remember the topic we were on, but it was something significantly serious. And one of the adults from the church came into the junior high room, cut through the crowd into a back room of storage looking for something, and then cut through it again. And I have never been so angry in my life. And I pulled him aside afterwards, and I just, shaking with rage, just said, what were you thinking? Do you understand how hard it is to keep the attention of 45 junior high minds? You know, I said, it's, it's not just that you were in an interruption while you were there, but that was it. The service was over. I might as well have just prayed out then. I'd lost them entirely. But Jesus doesn't respond like that, does he? He doesn't seem bothered at all. One of the things that's so striking about Jesus is people are constantly doing crazy things to get his attention. On another occasion, Jesus has just discovered that John the Baptist may be the only person who really understood who Jesus was. Just found out that he has been murdered, put to death by King Herod. And at the same time, his disciples come back from the ministry they were sent out to, and they're high octane, really excited. Jesus, you should have seen the things God was doing in your name with our hands. And he says, we need to get out into the wilderness. We need to get away. We need to pray. We need a retreat. And so they go out into the wilderness, but word gets round, and crowds follow Jesus into the wilderness. And once again, Jesus is interrupted in his plans, and this is what it says. It says, and Jesus saw the crowds as sheep without a shepherd, and he had compassion on them, so he taught them. And not only does he teach them, but at the end of the day, when the disciples come and they say, Rabbi, nobody brought anything to eat. We've been out here all day. There's 5,000 people here. He says, why don't you give them something to eat? He's so responsive to what's going on around him. He's not bothered by the interruption. And I think one of the places where we see uh, religiosity take hold in our own hearts is we make a strong divide between religious stuff and non-religious stuff. And we don't like our food to touch. We don't like those things to interact or mix. We're very bothered when we're doing religious things and they're interrupted. When we started this prayer thing this week on our very first morning last Sunday, About five minutes into praying, a guy who was completely distraught came through this doorway and begged us for help. He had um, fallen asleep on a friend's couch and become infested with bedbugs and was just freaking out. 
Jesus, how would he have responded to that? My tendency is to think, okay, so that's frustrating. We've got this time here to pray, and now that's all ruined because we've got to deal with this thing over here. Uh, Or at best, okay, I need to take care of this so I can get back to the real thing Jesus has called us to. You see, it's easy, I think, to distance ourselves from these arms crossed, scowling religious leaders who seem to only follow Jesus around to criticize him or to catch him in the act. Uh, But in actuality, I really think these things run deeper in our own hearts than we'd like to admit. But it's striking here, isn't it, that when this all happens, uh, first and foremost, not only does Jesus not say, hey, there's a time and a place for everything, I'll talk to you after the service. Right? He has the full attention of the audience, and he ends up not only having compassion on this guy and doing something for him, but he actually ends up teaching a profound lesson through all of this. Right? By the end of this, all the observers look at verse 12. He rose immediately and picked up his bed and went out before them all. So he leaves a different person walking. But notice what it says next. Uh, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this, right? They see what happens. It sinks in. It impacts them. They understand the significance of it. But let's ask the obvious question here. Okay. Why has this man come? Why have his friends gone through all the effort to carry him there, to break apart the roof, to interrupt the service, to lower him down? Uh, Remember, uh, we're dealing with a honor, shame, hospitality culture, and they've just broken into somebody's house in the middle of the day. It's significant. What's interesting here, and I think another mark of what's so different about Jesus, is it's more than he, he doesn't just... I'm trying to not use a triple negative. It's difficult. Not only does Jesus not see this man as an interruption, but notice the first thing he sees. He says, verse 5, and when Jesus saw their faith. Now here's why I find that really interesting. Because what, what is this? What would make a group of men who love their friend so much to not give up when the crowds are in the way, to not wait until the crowds disperse, but to tear apart someone else's roof and lower their friend down in the middle of it. Desperation, right? They are determined and desperate. They know that Jesus can do what no one else can do, and they must get their friend before him. And Jesus looks at that, and what does he label it? Faith. You see, this isn't even just compassion. I can tell that this means a lot to you. It must really be a problem. I'm, I'm hurt because you're hurting. He sees it for what it is. It's belief. He sees it as a recognition that, that even desperate circumstances, clinging on to Jesus as our only hope, like the catechism said this morning, uh, is the truest and the greatest expression of faith. But nonetheless, why have these men come? To see their friend healed. And what does Jesus say first and foremost? Verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, to us, as it probably was to the audience, and especially to the friends of the paralytic, that sounds strange, doesn't it? You would think 
that what this man is here for is relatively obvious, right? His need is what we would call, it's not even a felt need, it's an obvious need, it's a visible need. He's just been lowered through the roof because he's paralyzed. And Jesus forgives him of his sins. Now, why is this the case? Now, obviously, truly, this man's need for forgiveness outweighs his need for physical healing. That's definitely the case. Okay? I love what Warren Wearsby, who was a pastor a couple of decades ago, says about forgiveness. He says, forgiveness is God's greatest miracle. It's God's greatest miracle because it brings about the greatest impact through the greatest cost, his son dying in our place, to the greatest and eternal benefit, a permanent place in God's family. And that's true. But there's probably more going on here. You see, oftentimes in the first century world, especially in a Jewish culture, there was a presumed correlation between sin and healing. In fact, the rabbi said, before you can be healed, you must be forgiven. The assumption was that there's a a relationship between physical impairment and sin. Now, Jesus denies that that's always a correlation. In John chapter 9, a man who was born blind is sitting outside on the road as Jesus and the disciples pass, and the disciples turn to Jesus and they say, Jesus, who sinned that this man was born blind? Did he sin or was it his parents? Okay. And so they have this debate about the cause of this man's blindness, and Jesus responds, it was not because of any sin, but for the glory of God, and then he heals the guy, and suddenly he can see. Okay. Uh, the book of Job makes the same case. You, remember, uh, you may remember that Job's comforters come to him when Job has lost everything. He's lost his children, he's lost his wealth, he's lost his health, he's just sitting there in the ashes of his old life. And his friends sit with him for a while, and then they finally go, Job, don't you think it's time to repent? Clearly, God is very angry at you, and if you would just get things right, then everything would be okay. And Job rightly maintains that he's unaware of anything that he's done. Now, if we read the book of Job in the first two chapters, we know it's not Job's sinfulness that has brought these things upon him, but actually his righteousness that God has asked Satan to consider his servant Job, whose devotion to God is so worthwhile that it's not just for the goodies, not just for the health and wholeness, that even in the bad times, Job would worship God, which he continues to do in the book of Job. However, there are a few occasions where Jesus does make the connection between sin uh, and physical uh, impairment. In fact, that shouldn't be surprising to us because we can all think of medical conditions caused by bad behavior, right? Plenty of heart conditions are caused by bad behavior. Plenty of emphysema is caused by bad behavior. Plenty of kidney problems, right? There are lots of correlations between physical problems we have and sin to get us there. But uniquely, Jesus can see the cause in our life. Jesus is like us when we read the book of Job, being outside the story, seeing behind the veil, knowing all the details. In fact, in just a moment here, Jesus is going to perceive the very thoughts of people in the audience. When this man is lowered before him, he doesn't just know what is obvious and evident in front of him, he knows everything about this man. 
And for whatever reason, it appears there's a correlation here between forgiveness and this physical imperity. Now, once again, that strikes right at the heart of religion, because oftentimes when we find people in a condition of their own making, we say, well, you've made your bed. Now you lie in it. We look at it and we say, well, this is exactly what you deserve. You've gotten what you were owed. Or we think, well, you got yourself into this mess. You're going to have to get yourself out of this mess. Remember here, Jesus knows that this man is a sinner. And that there's a relationship between this man's particular sins and his particular condition in paralysis. But he doesn't say any of those things. He doesn't turn to the man and say, boy, how do you feel about those choices now? He doesn't say, and remember, he can because it's his word, I told you so. Right? The Old Testament is full of warnings of the consequences of not obeying the Lord. And here, here he stands before Jesus. And the first words out of Jesus' mouth are words of forgiveness. See, religion, religion condemns us. Religion holds up a standard and says, you do not meet it, and disqualifies us. Or, holds up a slightly modified loophole standard and says, I meet this fine, so I'm better than everyone else. We can see both of those playing out in this place. Remember here, this is Jesus, the perfect Son of God, who always does the things that please the Father, who has never sinned, yet he was tempted like us in all ways. The only one righteous enough to fulfill God's law perfectly. And he looks at this man in his unrighteousness and the consequences of it, and he extends freely and fully forgiveness. Now verse 6. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts. Now who were the scribes? These were the experts in the Old Testament. These were the ones who both had the job of communicating what the Old Testament taught to the Jews, as well as um, interpreting the law for, uh, for the Jews. And so these are experts in the word of God. And like we can often find ourselves sitting in and listening to a preacher their inner critic just comes out, and they don't voice it. It's not the right setting for that. But they think to themselves, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Their criticism here is that Jesus freely and fully extends forgiveness from himself. And they know rightly that the Old Testament declares that the only source of forgiveness is the one that ultimately all sin is against. Right? If, if a friend really hurt you, and they came to you, and you were, sitting, uh, you were sitting with another friend, and they came to you and said, hey, look, what happened yesterday, I'm so sorry, please forgive me. And your friend just chirped up, chirped up and said, I forgive you. Right? It would be inappropriate. It doesn't make any sense. There's a correlation between forgiveness and who we've offended. But ultimately, even the sins we do against one another, even the ways that we sin against ourselves or the world that we live in, are all against the creator who has made all of those things. Okay? That's why 
David, after committing adultery with one of his own soldier's wives and then plotting the death of said soldier, in Psalm 51, he says, Against you, O Lord, and you alone have I sinned. That's not a minimizing of sin. It's a deepening of sin. He recognizes that as much as he has sinned clearly against Bathsheba, because he's taken advantage of the power of his office, it's hard to say no to a king. Clearly against Uriah, her husband, who he uh, you know, committed adultery uh, against as well as put to death. Clearly against his entire empire because he's used the privileges of his office for his own selfishness in terrible ways. Clearly all of the men who die on the front lines in the midst of the plot, all of that is true. But behind all of that is the God who created and loves Bathsheba and Uriah and Israel and all of those soldiers. And so they recognize... Who can forgive sins but God alone? And they give a label to Jesus' problem. He's a blasphemer. He's made himself out to be God by having a prerogative that only God has. Now, I want to reiterate again the truth of their theology. The forgiveness that counts comes from God and God alone. They recognize that. The problem is they don't recognize who Jesus is. Now, verse 8, and immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus question within themselves. Notice here, Jesus hears their thoughts. This is not the only place where we find this in the Gospels. Many times people are thinking to themselves and Jesus just addresses their thoughts directly. In fact, in John chapter 2, it says that when Jesus went to Jerusalem, he, uh, many people believed in him, but he did not impart himself to any of them, for he knew what was in their hearts, because he knew what was in all men. Okay. Now, here's why that's significant. Because we need to understand this morning that Jesus' forgiveness in contrast with the religion of the scribes, is not just a free, nonchalant handing out of forgiveness because it doesn't matter. We need to understand this morning uh, that Jesus can forgive sins as the Son of God because he is the judge of all sin. In other words, he's not just laying aside or uh, diminishing the significance of sin. When Jesus says to this man, your sins are forgiven, he's not saying it's no big deal. He's not saying don't worry about it, it's not that big of a deal. Oftentimes, that's the contrast we try and make. Religion has standards, and if you don't keep those standards, it crushes you, and so real love has no standards. It meets people where they're at. It doesn't uh, hold sins against people. It's not judgmental. Okay. Now, oftentimes, judgmental means judging when we shouldn't judge. If that's what we mean, then that's absolutely right. But if that's the case, then you can't call Jesus, as the judge of all sins, judgmental. But you still have to call him the judge. In fact, that's what Jesus points to here. Notice what he says here in his response. 
He says, halfway through verse 8, Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or say, Rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Notice two things there. First, he sees this act of forgiveness as being tied to authority. Okay? Forgiveness is not some sort of anti-authoritarian revolt that says rules and standards don't matter. It's an expression of authority, and specifically, he identifies himself here for the first time in the Gospel of Mark as the Son of Man. Now, if you read the Gospels fully, you'll find that this is Jesus' most common term for himself. This is despite the fact that in chapter 1 of the Gospel of Mark, a voice from heaven is referred to Jesus and said, This is my beloved Son. Satan has questioned Jesus and said, If you are the Son of God, right, A demon in chapter 1 has spoken and said, we know who you are, the Holy One of God. All these titles are there and present. So is the title Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, the one that was expected. Jesus doesn't take any of those titles for himself. The title he prefers, the title he chooses, is Son of Man. Now, sometimes it's suggested that this phrase, Son of Man, uh, is just a relatively humble one. In other words... It means human. In fact, if you read the book of Ezekiel, that's exactly how it's used of Ezekiel, is he's referred to as son of man. In the Psalms, what is man that you are mindful of him, O Lord, or the son of man that you take heed to him? Okay, talking about humanity in general. But because of the way that Jesus uses this term in the Gospel of Mark especially, we know what he has in mind. You see, this is the beginning of the opposition of Jesus, and it will culminate as Jesus stands between, or before these very same men in an off-the-books trial to put him to death. And he will be questioned by the high priest, and he will respond to him, you will see the Son of Man coming with the clouds. Okay, now we know exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7. He's pointing to a particular passage, a prophecy of Daniel, that looks to the end of all things, after the empires of this world, when the Ancient of Day will set up his thrones and judge the world. And all dominion and power and authority will be given to one like the Son of Man. That's who Jesus is identifying as. And so here, he says he has the authority to forgive because he is the judge of all. He has been given the authority to stand in as judge. Now, that is a profound statement, but we need to recognize, as I said earlier, that Jesus' forgiveness is not a workaround of authority. It's not an ignoring of authority. It's not a resistance against some sort of man-made status quo. It is the position that he stands in as judge who can therefore grant pardon. Now, look again at verse 9. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or rise, take up your bed and walk? We need to notice the question that Jesus is asking is, which is easier to say? He's not asking which is easier to do, to forgive sins or to make a paralyzed person walk. Actually, that would be somewhat of a hard question because for us as human beings, they both are on the hinge of impossibility. Okay, and so it doesn't really matter because the one person who can do these things can do both things. So why would the question matter? 
What he's actually asking here is, which one is easier to say? Let's recognize, go back to the first century, sit in this room with me for a second. Here is this man in his early 30s, the son of a carpenter from Nazareth. And he stands as this paralytic is before him and he says, son, your sins are forgiven you. Why would that be easier to say than rise, take up your bed and walk? Because it's invisible, right? Nothing happens to this paralytic tangibly, observably. His face doesn't begin to shine. He's not handed his wings and his halo and he's all set. Right? It's just words. But it is a striking thing for Jesus to turn to a man who's been paralyzed and say, stand up, pick up your bed, and go home. Right? There is something on the line tangibly for that. If he says that and nothing happens, it means nothing. But notice what he says. He says, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. We really have to wrestle with the reality of Jesus as judge. We need to recognize that it's not just the scribes here whose hearts are known fully and completely by Jesus. Or the history that's known fully and completely of the paralytic. That when we stand before Jesus, we stand fully and completely known. You see, it's one thing, and this is the thing about religion, it's one thing to settle for a religious appearance, to focus on externals, and to mistake a good reputation for righteousness, or, if we're honest with ourselves, an ability to keep the worst part of us in the shadows and get away with it. Jesus knows your hearts. Every thought you've thought but never voiced, every desire that you've had that is sinful and never had the opportunity to fulfill, every deep and dark secret of your past that you've successfully hidden from those who know you best. They're all there. They're all uh, like light before him, as it says about God knowing our secrets. You see, the reason why Jesus is against religion is because religion doesn't work. What's the term that Jesus likes to use for these religious leaders? The one that he coins and has become standard fare in our communication today, hypocrite. Okay. He takes this word from the acting world of the Greek, one who wears a mask, and he constantly applies it to the religious leaders. A commentator from the last century, early last century, J.C. Ryle, says this about hypocrisy. He says, hypocrisy is not just a great sin. It's also a foolish one. Because the only people you deceive don't get a vote. And the only one whose opinion matters you can never deceive. You see, the problem with religion is it cannot save us. That's why Jesus is against religion. That's why he's so hard on the religious elite. It's not just because they're stuck-up prigs uh, that, that are frustrating and, and you know, harsh on everybody else's party. It's because they're standing in a place where they believe they are safe 
that they know the way to safety. But what does Jesus say? You're the blind leading the blind. Your whitewashed tombs, outside, white and beautiful, inside a rotting corpse. All we, Isaiah says, have gone astray. Each one has gone his own way. That is the human condition. There is none who is righteous, Paul says in Romans chapter 3. No, not one. But Jesus comes in that place of knowing the depths of our sinfulness, and he knows it better than you do. Where you are blind to your own sins, Jesus is not blind. Knowing the depths of what uh, is going on in your heart, knowing all of that, he extends freely and fully forgiveness. And to demonstrate that, he brings healing. In fact, we can make a comparison here. It's a comparison that Jesus makes. You see, Jesus says, do not think that I came to condemn the world. I came that so through me the world might be saved. Yes, Jesus is the Son of Man who will stand and judge the whole world, but what has he done with that judgment? He has come and sat under judgment. He has come and taken our punishment upon his shoulders. Uh, he has come and therefore to grant and offer full pardon and free forgiveness And just like this paralytic who is in need of healing, Jesus says, a physician doesn't come for the healthy, but for the sick. It is the sinful needs of everyone in the audience that Jesus is addressing for which he came. It is our needs, our need for forgiveness, the messed up stuff in us that uh, cultivate the reason for Jesus' coming. And so we're fools to stand before God and seek to demonstrate our own righteousness, to cultivate our own religion, to change and shift his standards so that we can live up to them, to compare ourselves to others as if it was, um, as if it was you know, uh, a contest where the most righteous among us will make it and those will not. We all stand condemned, but Jesus came to save And so Jesus says, rise, take up your bed and walk, and the man does so. And the audience is struck profoundly. They glorify God for this. We've never seen anything like this. But I do want to point out to you something. Here he asks, which is easier to say? But what if he had asked, which is easier to do? What if he had asked, what is harder to heal a man or to say your sins are forgiven you. See, all Jesus does so that this man might be healed is just speak the word and it happens. But the forgiveness that Jesus presents here is much more costly. See, because Jesus didn't just come to extend forgiveness, to offer it, but to achieve it. Because he is not just forgiving, but just God has a plan, Paul says in the book of Romans, so that God might be just and the justifier of the ungodly. Notice the phrasing there. How can God be completely just, do perfect righteousness, and justify who? The ungodly. That's why Jesus has come. 
That's the purpose of the Son of Man, of the Son of God, of the Messiah. He came to die in our place, to bear the burden of our sins fully and completely, to endure the full and righteous wrath of God in our place. That's why, those of you who are Christians this morning, that's why John says in 1 John, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Not faithful and merciful. God is not going above and beyond in forgiving the sins of the Christian because those sins have already been punished. Those sins have already been paid for. Jesus did not come to condemn the world, but the world stands condemned. But for the Christian, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Our forgiveness is fully paid for and therefore freely offered. But recognize as well that this is not just the heart God has for us. This is the heart we're called to reflect, the heart we're called to walk in. How do we respond to those around us struggling with their sins with the same compassion that Jesus has? And with a way that is different than Jesus, because Jesus comes as the one righteous one dying for sinners, but we come as sinners who have found salvation. And so we come not just with compassion, but a deeper understanding, because we too have that same need, and we know where it's been met. And so for the Christian, religion is doubly foolish in setting itself apart from others, because there is no distinction Nothing has set us apart from others as making us better or more deserving of God's love. And so we can respond as well in full and overwhelming compassion. Not with, uh, you know, a raised nose uh, and a sense of better than you or holier than thou. Not with arms crossed in cynicism, nitpicking and seeking to label everybody's sin. The church is not called to be judge. That doesn't mean there isn't a judge. But that judge came and died and offers free pardon to those who would receive it in faith. Once again, that's why Jesus is against religion, because he's for salvation. He's come to heal. He's come to set right. He's come for us. Let's pray. Father, the gift of salvation you offer is free to all who would receive it in faith, but it is not without cost. But we thank you, Lord, that that cost has been paid fully and completely in the life and death of Jesus Christ. And we know that our sins have been paid for because you raise him, raised him from the dead as evidence that he was an acceptable sacrifice. I pray, Lord, that you would uproot the religion in our own heart that seeks to please you instead of standing in the position of Jesus adopted into his body that we are your children, your son, in whom you are well pleased. I pray that you would uproot the religiosity in us that seeks to compete and compare. 
And especially, Lord, I pray that you would uproot the critical heart we have that constantly condemns others because they do not live up to our standards and they've broken our rules. God, we should see sin as you see sin, as a horrible impairment, as a terrible thing uh, that you have a solution for, that you long to overcome. Your word says that you're not willing that any should perish because of their sins, but desire that all should come to repentance. Your word says that you are long-suffering because you desire that all would be saved. I pray that you'd help us this morning to lay aside the facade. We know, Lord, that it's not just that we needed you because of past sins. We need you this morning because of present sins. And so I pray that we would come before you in this uh, time of worship laid bare, that we would walk in the light exposed, that we would boldly enter into the throne room of grace, experiencing the free gift of our presence, our presence with you. Lord, we thank you that you gave us something better than religion. You gave us your son. We pray these things in his name, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.